0: Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Even when we don't understand what's going on around us, Lord, you are good. Lord, this morning, um, would you use this time, would you use this morning to make us more like you, to make us more like Christ? Help us uh, to open our hearts and um, be ready to hear what you have to say this morning, Lord. We give it all to you in your holy and your precious name, the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, So the last few weeks, we've been studying the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and uh, so today we have the opportunity to dive into an extremely hard and difficult saying in Scripture. And to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure that Frank planned to leave this one for me, just being honest. But uh, no, seriously, once we, uh, once we get past some of the questions this morning, um, I believe this saying has some profound applications in our lives. Um, so let's go to the Scripture. It's Matthew 27, 46. You can open that up if you have it, Um, and it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemos sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this morning, first, let's discuss the situation and the surroundings. Jesus was hung on the cross at roughly nine in the morning. And he has been hanging there for between three and six hours now. He's in extraordinary agony and physical pain. Listen to this account of what a crucifixion was. Crucifixion was meant to inflict the maximum amount of shame and torture upon the victim. The victim of crucifixion was first severely scourged or beaten, an ordeal that was life-threatening by itself. Then he was forced to carry the large wooden crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion. The victim would be forced to stretch out his arms on the crossbeam where they were nailed in place. The nails were hammered through the wrists, not the palms, which kept the nails from pulling through the hand. The placement of the nails in the wrists also caused excruciating pain as the nails pressed on large nerves running to the hands. The crossbeam would then be hoistened up and fastened to an upright piece that normally remained standing between crucifixions. After fastening the crossbeam, the executioners would nail the victim's feet to the cross as well, normally one foot on top of the other, nailed through the middle and the arch of each foot, with the knees slightly bent. The primary purpose of the nails was to inflict pain. Once the victim was fastened to the cross, all his weight was supported by three nails, which would cause pain to shoot throughout the body. The victim's arms were stretched out in a way to cause cramping and paralysis in the chest muscles, making it impossible to breathe unless some of the weight was borne by the feet. So in order to take a breath, the victim had to push up with his feet. And in addition to enduring the excruciating pain caused by the nail in his feet, the victim's raw back would rub against the rough, upright beam of the cross. After taking a breath and in order to relieve some of the pain in his feet, the victim would begin to slump down again. This action put more weight on his wrists and again rubbed his raw back against the cross. However, the victim could not breathe in that lowered position. So before... so before long, the torturous process would begin again. In either position, the torture was intense. Death was ultimately by asphyxiation as the victim lost the strength to continue pushing up on his feet in order to take a breath. Ugh. Jesus is going through this intense torture. The pain must have been beyond anything that we can fathom. It's pain that would lead most of us to want to choose death right in that moment. Imagine the desperation you would feel if you had no control over a situation like that. You're in severe torture and you don't even have the ability to end it. It's brutal. You know, the scripture starts by saying that at noon, a darkness fell over the land. You know, darkness brings about fear. As kids, no one teaches us to fear darkness, but most do. Darkness uh, disorients us. It causes us to question. If nothing else, it causes anxiety because we cannot see what's around us. Darkness in Scripture is associated with things like judgment and wrath and chaos. Um, Many have speculated that, well, you know, maybe this was an eclipse, And maybe there's a scientific reason behind this darkness that it occurred. But if you viewed an eclipse, um, I know I have, some of you probably have too, it only goes for moments. This was three hours. And also, this took place during a full moon or a Passover, and uh, it's impossible for a natural eclipse to happen during a full moon. So, can you imagine watching torture and death in front of you? And then the odd occurrence of an eerie darkness falls over you for three hours? I believe God's creation was crying out in anguish over what was occurring. There's a huge correlation between creation and the gospel. I also believe this was a direct representation of what was happening to our Lord and our Savior. So then it says, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the Greek word here is used, was to cry out, was to loud ye- to a loud yell or a scream. He literally pulled himself up in complete pain and screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening is Jesus questioning the Father? Did God forsake his Son? Is that possible? Can one member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forsake the other? So many questions come to mind. And uh, with that, there's so many applications in our lives that come into play. So let's, let's break it down and let's walk through it this morning, okay? First, the first point is sin is serious, You know, we've already discussed briefly um, the excruciating pain and torment of being put to death on a cross from a physical perspective. It was horrifying. Nails in the hands and the feet and placed in a position that you couldn't even breathe. The pain was unbearable. What's crazy is, I think that the physical pain was not as intense as the spiritual anguish that was occurring. So think with me for a minute. First of all, We're all sinners in this room, right? We all do things wrong. We all have told a lie. We've been envious. We've gossiped. We've held unforgiveness in our hearts. And those are the little ones we talk about, right? (laughs) Like, if we're honest, many of us have done far worse than told a lie. We may have been adulterers or intentionally hurt others or we've abused power or we've been arrogant, maybe even murder, who knows? The list goes on and on. So now take your life and think through the multitude of sins that you've committed from birth until right now. How does that make you feel? It's heavy. You may have deep regrets and shame and guilt about what has occurred in your life. Now, multiply that times humanity. Every human that has ever lived, take all of their sins and now place it on yourself. For instance, take the sins of someone like Adolf Hitler and place that on your shoulders, murdering millions of innocent people. This is what was occurring. Jesus was taking on the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And not only that, but in Isaiah 53, 4-5, it states, he held our infirmities, our sorrows, and grief of humankind. Can you imagine the weight, the heaviness, the despair? I can't even handle the weight of my own sin, let alone anyone else or everyone else. Sin is serious. In fact, it's so serious that someone had to pay the penalty for it. God cannot be associated with sin in any way. Zero. None. And because of that, our sin has to be reconciled. So God sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me. Do you really understand that? Do I really understand that? Even if you've been a believer for years, can you comprehend that sin is serious? If you surrender your life to Christ, you have a savior, A God that took all of your sin, all of it. The lie you told last week, the lust you let linger in your head, the envy, the affair you had, the shady financial dealings, the cheating, the anger, the hurt you inflicted on someone, the pride, he took all of it. Does that mean that we can sin now that we're saved? No. (laughs) If you love another, you don't wish harm or pain on them, right? Why would you continue to live in a way that doesn't express the great understanding of your faith. You know, there's um, a continuum of sin. Um, Listen to this and see where you might be on this this path. Some may be enjoying sin. Um, Some may be ignoring sin. Some may be mourning sin. Some may be confessing sin. And finally, some may be repenting of sin. Where are you on that list this morning? You may have a lingering, habitual sin in your life today. Find freedom in the fact that Jesus paid the price for you. Live in a way that your life demonstrates the reality of your faith, the reality of your understanding of the grace you receive each and every day. Second point, embrace suffering. Wait, did you just say embrace suffering? I'm really not cool with that statement, right? Embrace suffering, you're crazy. Listen to this quote from Ravi Zacharias very carefully. It's really been um, transforming my thinking. At the very moment that Jesus cried these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the height of his sense of desolation, He was, in fact, at the very center of God's will. Suffering, pain, anguish, it doesn't mean that you're not in God's will. And this is evidence that Jesus was on the cross. He was being tortured. He was in extreme pain, in spiritual and mental anguish, and he still was in the center of God's will. The center of a will that led to the saving grace for you and for me. You know, today, so much in today's society, especially modern North America society, we're all about comfort, right? People are having a bad day when their coffee order is wrong, right? Or when you get stuck behind a slow car. Or here in Carroll County, when you're stuck behind a tractor. Where do I live? I don't know. But no, seriously, we live for comfort. We make decisions on comfort. I'm not saying you need to go find suffering. No, no, no. Don't go looking for it. But when it comes, and we know it will, embrace it. Let God walk you through the fire. You know, I know in my life that some of the sweetest times of communion with Jesus um, are in my darkest hours. Suffering is when it gets real. It's when our interests are narrowed, it captures our attention, we ask the question, what really matters? This morning, um, I really wanted to give you an opportunity to hear from someone who's embraced suffering. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing her uh, my entire life, and and I've seen her story unfold over all these years, and so I'm really excited for you to, to hear from her this morning. Listen to this story.
1: My name is Cheryl Raltson, but for 30 years, I was Cheryl Osterhaus. So at the age of 23, I had come to know the Lord and beginning to live for him and I met a man named Doug Osterhaus who was also a young believer in the Lord. We fell in love fast and hard and we were married within 18 months. Um, We had a great marriage. It really was full of love and forgiveness and grace and richness and service and laughter and kids. We had four children. Doug was a great husband and father. He loved well and he was very intentional in his love for us. By 2013, we had pretty well launched all the kids into the world. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about something my dad had said when he was um, dying of cancer when he was about 50 years old. He said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future. And I think at that period of my life, when Doug and I were grappling with our future, as the kids were leaving home, I would have said the same thing. But in some ways, as I look back now, I think I really was um, depending more on Doug for my future than the Lord. So that makes February 21st, 2014 all the harder to grapple with. That morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call, and they told me that he had had a stroke, and they instructed me to come to New York to get on an Amtrak train and come to New York. So I called my kids and my daughter and I got on a train from Baltimore and headed to New York. Throughout the day I spoke with the Amtrak police and I spoke with the ER doctor. And in many ways they were trying to tell me that my husband had passed away and I just couldn't or wouldn't, I couldn't handle that information at the time. And during that trip, my greatest fear was that my two boys were going to arrive at the hospital and I wasn't going to be there to comfort them. And I did not want them to hear that news that their dad had passed away from the doctors. I wanted them to hear that from me. So we arrived at the hospital and I was led to a room where just my two boys were, Mitch and Marcus. And they broke the news to myself and Morgan that their dad, my husband, had passed away. I later found out that they had asked all the Amtrak employees to leave the room so they would have time for us to talk to us privately. And we prayed together and we hugged and we cried and we prayed some more and God provided for me that very first day through my boys in a way I never could have imagined. Um, That very first night we got home from New York at about midnight. I crawled into bed that night, I was just in shock. Um, I listened to praise music, and I prayed, and really, I think my prayer was just help. And at some point during the night, I came across a tiny little picture, and all it said was, I have a plan. Do you trust me? God. I felt like God was speaking directly to me. He had a plan. Did I trust him? I knew I could. If I could trust anything or anybody at that point, it was God. A month after Doug died, a friend of mine sent me Isaiah 43, 19. It says, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness. it's hard to look for Him in the desert, but I am forever thankful for those people around me that continually pointed me towards Him. It was during that time I really had a hard time reading the Word. I just I had a hard time focusing on anything, but I, I found I could focus more on small passages, and I started to memorize those small passages. And when I did that, my entire outlook changed. I didn't receive specific answers from the Lord as to what my future held, but I slowly started to trust Him, the one who held my future. Nine months later on Thanksgiving morning, I wrote these words in my journal. I wrote so, so much to be thankful for, so, so much to grieve. We had such sweetness and intimacy and joy and a future together. I still can't fathom that it's all gone still have no concept of a future alone and i also wrote about how hard it is when i go to bed i naturally and even nine months later still would reach out for doug and that just brought such comfort and you know and now it brought such grief and that morning i woke up and i turned to isaiah 41:13, for i am the lord your god who will uphold your right hand who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Kind of blew my mind that even that, you know, that sadness and that grief, God was answering me and God has me and God had my right hand. A few years in, I still struggled with my future and purpose and kind of how and where I fit into this world. And at that time, Psalm 1611 came alive to me. It says, Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. I was tempted to start looking for joy and pleasure somewhere else, and I um, I taped that verse to my fridge, and I, I was reminded every day that he is the answer, and it is in him that I'm truly going to find his path for me and true joy and real pleasures. Well. It's now been four years. God is good and faithful and remarried to a wonderful man named Charles, and he's experienced the same losses. And guess what? We both need to learn and keep learning to look to the giver of life for joy and pleasures and for our future together.
0: Cheryl didn't run from suffering. It was forced upon her, but in the midst of suffering, she embraced it. She couldn't even comprehend all that was occurring, but look at how God showed up in her life, although the hardest moments of her life, some of the most intimate with her Savior. God is more concerned about the journey than the final outcome. Do you love comfort more than seeing Jesus work and transform you? It's a hard question. I struggle with that question. Listen to this quote from Dan Allender, a psychologist. He says, As long as your cry for relief is louder than your cry for a changed heart, you will remain a prisoner to your pain and a hostage of self-pity. You know, many in this room, I can think of several, honestly, excuse me, get choked up, have suffered far more than I can comprehend. And I know you may say, Mark, it's really easy for you to say these things. But what I do know is that his word is true. And even in your darkest, most horrible suffering, God can and will walk with you. So this morning, evaluate your life. And when suffering comes, knocking on your door, and it will, walk through it confidently, embracing it, and watch God show up in amazing ways. Finally, the last point. Have you accepted the substitute. You know, what's um, amazing about this passage is that it's a direct quote of Psalm 22. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quote of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written almost a thousand years earlier than the time of Jesus hanging on the cross. You know, today, many Christians know and love uh, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and it goes on. Well, in those days, the days of Jesus, Psalm 22 would have been similar type of verse to that crowd. So when Jesus yelled out these words, most Jewish people would think of that scripture. Even on the cross, Jesus was drawing people to the understanding that the Savior and the gospel were right in front of them. If you read on Psalm 22, the things mentioned were literally happening in front of them. And remember, this was written almost a thousand years earlier. Listen to this, Psalm 22, 14 to 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, <clears throat> my heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Villains encircled Jesus on the cross. They pierced his hands and his feet. They divided his clothes among them by casting lots. His bones were on display. I think three things are happening here. I believe Jesus says this statement to, number one, engage the Jewish people around him by pointing to the Messiah. Number two, Psalm 22 ends by giving glory to God. Jesus was showing that the story wasn't over. Listen to this last verse. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Praise God, right? Psalm 22 ends with hope. You know, during suffering, what comes out of you? I was struck with this. As Jesus suffered, what came out of him was Scripture, are we living a life that's so intentionally in tune with God that in times of great stress, Jesus is still oozing from our lips and our actions? Did Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me because God had forsaken him? Well, that's a two part answer. No and yes. No. It's impossible for God to not be the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, in this moment, God had to forsake Jesus because of the sin he was carrying in our place. Do you know what hurts so much in life? Love. Love is the largest force in the world, and when it's blocked, it brings pain. God had to turn his head to allow this to happen so that you and I might have the opportunity to be saved. So this leaves us with our final point. Have you accepted the substitute? You know, if you reject this, you're holding on all of that sin onto yourself. Remember, sin can't be in the presence of God. He's holy and perfect, and sin has no place in his presence. But, 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 our God provided a substitute for us. If you trust, believe, and surrender to Jesus in your life, he takes your place. Your sin hung on that cross with Jesus. He is your substitute, And he didn't just take the negative away. He put the positive in its place. He traded it with righteousness. God sees you as if he sees Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. So church, Maybe you're in the midst of sin in your life. You're not living in the understanding that someone had to die for your sin. Surrender your sin today. And, church, maybe you're in the midst of suffering, and all you keep doing is trying to escape to comfort. Embrace suffering. Allow God to walk you through a time of obedience and pain, but know that he will be with you every step of the way. And finally, church, today is an amazing day to surrender to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've committed yourself to Jesus years ago, but you're living like God didn't provide a substitute for you. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you're realizing for the first time today that Jesus' death and resurrection are there for you also. The gospel is for all people, even the worst of sins, murder, abuse, sexual sin, drugs. Jesus took that sin in your place. There is nothing that Jesus did not take on for you and for me. Don't let today be another day where you leave and don't embrace the gift of grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, it's um, heavy, but but it's also so hopeful and so glorious. Lord, thank you for being our substitute. You know, this morning there might be some people here who want to surrender their life to Christ or or recommit their life to Jesus. Um, there's nothing special or magic about these words. Uh, it's more about your heart. But but if you'd like to just pray with me, I'm sorry um, for the past. I've messed up and I'm sinful. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross for me. I invite you into my life, and I trust you alone for my salvation. That's it. That's all it is. Um, You know, just sense in the Spirit, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, would you raise your hand or look up at me? Maybe, um, maybe you've lived for Jesus and he's been in your heart for a long time, but um, there's just something in the way right now and you need to recommit your life to God today. Lord, thank you um, for the amazing grace. Thank you for being our substitute and for shedding your blood so that we can be children of God. Amen. You know, um, today and every Sunday, the altar's open. Um, You may need to deal with some issues in your life this morning. Um, You might have some questions, um, or maybe you need to talk through some things with a counselor. Um, There'll be some elders and some counselors in the back, and they would love to pray with you or talk with you this morning. Um, It's never too late to accept Jesus in your life. The altar is open this morning. Let's worship.